Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, Ephesians 4, 25 uh, until the end, 32. With the title being, Do Not Grieve the Spirit. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, if the point of all this is what grieves the Holy Spirit, we, we learned last week what can make him happy. What is it exactly that grieves him? And we just went through a list of things that can be exactly that. But before we go into it, I always like to make sure we all have the same definition of what grief is. And we all know examples of grieving. Uh, we can look to that Greek word that we just saw, and it shows up in other parts of the New Testament. What are some examples of those? In Matthew 14, we have the story of Herod, who's having some type of celebration. And if you remember, Salome uh, is dancing. At this time, John the Baptist is in custody. He's in the prison, in the dungeon. Um, Herod gives the promise, hey, you know, uh, whatever you want up to half the kingdom, uh, I'll give it to you. And Salome does the dance, and he says, well, you know, what a wonderful dance. What is it that you require? What is it that you wish of me? And she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And the next verse, it says that this grieved Herod. He knew he had to do a terrible thing that he did not want to do. It grieved him. It gave him great sorrow. But because of the promises he made, because of the people that he was around, he commanded that John the Baptist be executed. Another example that we see that word grief, it's uh, in the Gospels when Jesus speaks to his disciples and he's talking about his upcoming death. Every time the disciples heard that, they were grieved. And why wouldn't be they? I mean, for the past three years, they were with Jesus, seeing all the miracles, seeing all the examples of love. But here he is talking about how very soon he's going to die. And, and truly, death is the universal grief that we all can share. We always see grieving families. We know what grief is. We've experienced it. Another example of grief was at the Last Supper, when we had the disciples eating with Jesus. And Jesus randomly says at one point, one of you here will betray me. So the very thought of doing something terrible to someone, we saw it before with Herod, but now the disciples are thinking, oh my goodness, is it me? Will I betray Jesus, the one who I love? This is another example of grief. Looking towards the actual definition of the Greek word, it says grief can be a heaviness or a sorrow, a great distress. And we know that. We know what grief is. If you look at it from the English definition of grief, it comes from words that mean heaviness. So gravity has the same root word as grief because it comes from uh, grave, a grave matter. is something very heavy that we talk about. 
So now that we have the definition of grief, of sorrow, a heaviness to move forward with, we can dissect each one of these verses verse by verse to see exactly what it is that we do or can do that can cause grief to the Holy Spirit. Basically, the opposite of his will. Verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we can phrase this verse as saying, The Holy Spirit is distressed or heavy with sorrow whenever we lie. And that's not something shocking. I mean, we have the Ten Commandments. We have many examples of very clear-cut things that we shouldn't do. But lying has a gray area that I know at least I used to play with where it's deception. And I would always think, oh, well, you know, a white lie or a small deceptive thing that I said really isn't a lie. There's something magical about the words that I said that make it a lie and everything else is not a lie. Doesn't work that way. If you look at the the definition, it says falsehood is a lie or to deceive into a falsehood. So don't think that deception is, is somehow different than lying. If you deceive, you are lying even though you are silent. And we see this all the time through the Old Testament, right? The Israelites were really deceptive. They were really technical people. Even to this day, we can go to Israel and they're very, very technical. Oh, as long as I don't work on the Sabbath, I'm okay. I don't, as long as I don't push a button on the elevator, I'm okay. Very technical. The Pharisees were very technical people. But in a sense, that's just deception. And we know what Jesus said. He doesn't judge us by the literal acts that we do, but he looks at your heart. Is your heart deceptive? If you commit adultery in your heart, to Jesus it's the same thing. Moving forward to verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This one's a fun one because it's always, it always comes up. But there's two parts to it, right? We could break it up into be angry and do not sin. And finally, to not let the sun go down on your wrath. But here we have the Bible very clearly saying, be angry, with the caveat of do not sin. And we have the example of Jesus being angry. He went to the money changers in the temple. I'm sure he raised his voice and said he was turning tables and and causing a ruckus. He was angry. It's okay to be angry. It's important to differentiate between anger and hate. Whereas I can love you very much, I could still get angry with you for something that happened. It's an emotion. And we saw Jesus getting angry. Hate is a very chronic, long-term, and progressive problem. And whenever we see things that the Lord hates, we can look towards Proverbs, for example. And I will do that in a bit. But it's important to distinguish between the two. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. This one is also interesting, and it it makes more sense once you go to the next verse. But it's important. The point is saying don't let things fester. Um, if, If you allow it to fester, and you look to the next verse, 27, nor give place to the devil, allowing a grudge to be held or allowing that anger to fester, it can become hate, and that's when a problem arises. So this is a place where you could put technicalities where I thought it'd be kind of funny. Here in Minnesota, it's, it's much different than California in the sense that we have really long summer days and really short 
winter days, which in my mind I was thinking, would that allow me to be more angry or wrathful during the summer because I have more time before the sun actually goes down? But again, technicalities don't work. Um, along those lines, I, I thought this was funny too. I got made fun of it for a lot, but I didn't, as a kid, I didn't have a concept of uh, daylight savings time. Who does until you actually understand time? But my understanding was that the nights get quicker uh, as you approach October. It gets darker faster, obviously, because Halloween is on the 31st of October. So it's just getting more evil in the world, hence it gets darker. But I was a weird kid. Don't pay too much attention to that. The point is, um, when it says don't let, the, don't let the sun go down in your wrath, it's saying do not give place to the devil. Because if you don't deal with your grudge, if you don't deal with this issue it can grow to a much bigger problem. And we see that, right? We, what, is, what is the devil described as? He's described as a roaring lion waiting to devour. Examples of, of giving a little tiny space to the devil for deception. Plenty of examples of that. The very first one was Adam and Eve. Very little deception, very little place that Adam and Eve gave to, to the serpent. Did God really say that you would die the day you had that fruit. Just little tiny seeds that planted, and it, it leads to lifetimes of, of trouble. King Saul was the first anointed king. Uh, he gave examples of, of different times where he uh, was instructed to obey the Lord in, in very detailed ways whenever he went to war, but he instead kept some of the, the bounty of war. And the answer to him was, it's better to obey than sacrifice. He gave way to little tiny places for the devil to fester, and eventually it cost him to lose everything. Go forward to the New Testament. We have Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember their story. They did a really good thing, right? They sold their home and gave it to the church. That's, that's pretty awesome. They had a little tiny white lie, a little tiny deception, where they said, hey, we'll just let everybody else think that we gave everything that we got from the home sale but we'll keep some of her for ourselves. In that time, they were judged immediately with, uh, with death. The point is, don't give any small spot to the devil because it will grow and fester. <laughs> Moving on to 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that may, he may have something to give to him who, is, who has need. This verse was interesting to me because it's very easy to tell somebody, oh, stop sinning or stop doing that bad thing you're doing. But this verse can speak to all of us because it's not only the obvious, don't steal any longer, but then it's, you know, do something good, work with it. That's fine. We can stop stealing. We can start doing good things. But they take it a step further. The reason you should do all these good things is so that you can help others in need. And that's really powerful when we ourselves were in trouble with uh, any previous sin that we had. We can come forward from that, become stronger, and then see others who are struggling with the same thing, and then we can in turn help them. It's not just enough that you stop doing it. God wants us to learn from it, to do better, and then to reach out and help others who are struggling in the same way. What this says to me is that no one really is lost. There's nothing that anybody can do that really is the bottom line. Everybody can come back from something and in turn help somebody else. Verse 29, let no, one corrupt, let no corrupt word 
proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And this is a concept that I, I like to throw around also, right? If you are saying something nice to someone to help them build them up, right? That's what edification is, literally an edifice, or to help build. Obviously, I know you're listening to me, but there's going to be other people that I don't know that are also listening. It's a huge concept, and it plays in with what I said before. We are chosen as ambassadors for God. Whenever we say things, whenever a political figure says something, which happens all the time in our news, not only the person listening is listening, but everybody else is listening and and learning from that too. What you say should not be corrupt. Don't let these even simple things like dirty jokes, don't let these uh, crass statements come out just because, oh, it's just between me and my friends. There are other people listening. You are supposed to be that light on the hill. It makes an impact even when you think it doesn't. Verse 30 is, is pretty much the summary for all of this. We just went through a list of things that can grieve the Holy Spirit. And verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Moving on, he gives even a greater list of things that can grieve. Let all the bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So these things are kind of obvious. It's nothing new. I don't have to tell you what is bad and what is good. But what I think we should focus on is that difference between anger and hate. This is my opinion. I'm not going to say this is actually 100% accurate, but in history, we all know who Hitler was. Did you know that Hitler was an artist, a painting artist? It actually was his passion, right? From 1908 to 1913, he was very active, hundreds of paintings, and we have many of them even to this day. But that's what he loved, That's what he wanted to do. You can go online and look at the critical analysis. Whenever you do some type of art, any movies or something, what do the critics say? How how do they like my work? Well, he made some paintings. How did they like his work? The critical analysis for him, uh, here it says, after seeing the the paintings Hitler submitted to the Vienna Art Academy, John Gunther wrote, they are prosaic, utterly devoid of rhythm, color, feeling, or spiritual imagination. Pretty harsh. They are architect sketches, painful, precise draftsmanship, nothing more. No wonder the Vienna professors told them to go to an architectural school and give up pure art as hopeless. One modern critic in our day was asked to review some of his paintings without being told who actually painted them, and he actually judged them pretty decent, quite good. The different style in which he drew human figures, however, the critic said, pointed to a profound uninterest in people. So I don't know, what does this mean? Is this a a view into the mind of Hitler? The point is, he had a passion. He was all about it for years. But he was crushed. In a sense, he allowed the words of the critics, he allowed a space to fester. When he gave up on his dream of painting... He joined the military in 1914, which is the very first year of World War I. I'm not saying that's the cause and the reason why he became who he was, but the point is little things in our life, 
There are events where you could look back on your life that are profound twists. I think I mentioned to you this before, but one of the most unique pivot points for my life that really directed it had to do with a really silly Chinese movie on TV that was playing at my house, uh, I think, 15 years ago. And my dad really wanted me to watch it with the family, but I just didn't care. I didn't want to watch it. And this erupted into a huge argument where he told me I had to pretty much quit school and get a job. And, and that was pivotal for me. I, I allowed the sun to go down with my wrath, with my anger, and I let it fester for, for, I mean, a year, two years. I had the jobs that I did in college, all because of that one little tiny incident. I gave place to the devil in one little tiny spot. I'm not saying that's what Hitler did, but he gave up on his passion. I had a little tiny spot that I allowed the devil to get into. We can look to the Bible and see examples of this also. I don't have to be uh, giving you the whole story, but if we look at King David, the most famous story is him with Bathsheba and Uriah. And just for a quick refresher, uh, King David is there in control, sees Bathsheba bathing, uh, summons her to the palace and sleeps with her. Very soon thereafter, she gets pregnant. David realizes he's in trouble. He already committed adultery, step one. How do you get rid of this? He wanted to do some lies and deceit. Things very much against God's will that we just read. Things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Things that make him heavy with sorrow. So he summoned Uriah back, you know, spent some time with your family. I know we're at war, but maybe you could cover up this one. Uriah, being the loyal soldier that he was, decided, no, I'm going to be loyal to my king. I won't be off duty. Well, committed adultery. There's a pregnancy. I can't lie and deceive my way out of this. I'll kill him. He committed murder, adultery, lies, and deception. That's the story of King David, Uriah, and Bathsheba. Keep that in mind, and I'm going to tell you a story of somebody named Ahithophel. Not really that well-known of a figure. Does anybody recognize them? Because I certainly forgot about him. Ahithophel was a counselor, a really wise, a really sage counselor to King David. He was described in the Bible as saying, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. If you wanted to know what God was saying, what God was thinking, ask Ahithophel. He will give you the best advice. And naturally, why would not King David want this? And he served King David well. But we have a story in Samuel where Ahithophel is actually helping Absalom, which is the rebellious son of King David. That's kind of weird. Why would he be serving King David and suddenly Absalom? Absalom went into Jerusalem, took over the city during his rebellion, and was asking Ahithophel, how can I cement my power here and get the people to my side and, and uh, just get back at my father, essentially? Ahithophel, he knew the best advice to give. But he gave some very bitter, some very wrathful advice. He said, take all the concubines of King David, go to the very top of the temple, go into them for all of the seated to see. That's humiliating. He used to serve King David and did this terrible act full of bitterness, he wanted to humiliate David. He wanted revenge, vengeance. I don't know what his, his goals were, but it was very vile. After doing that, Ahithophel said, Hey, Absalom, give me some soldiers. King David is weak right now. I can knock him out. I can kill him. I mean, the story's getting thicker. Why does the previous counselor to King David want to kill him and end his life? 
King David actually had a spy, a, a, another counselor who went to King Absalom and gave different advice. And Absalom went with the, uh, the spy's advice, not knowing it actually came from David. And when Ahithophel saw that his very wise advice, that he knew he could end King David, and the Bible says, yeah, he could have, he realized all is lost. His plans of, of being bitter, vengeful, were over. So he just gave up. He went to his home, put his order into his household, made sure everything was okay, and hung himself. All right, so what's the point of this story? What, what in the world am I trying to get at? Ahithophel had a son named Iliam. Iliam had a daughter named Bathsheba. While Ahithophel was counseling King David, his own granddaughter Bathsheba was taken by his king. He slept with her. He saw his own family get torn apart by King David's actions. He saw his own grandson-in-law get deceived, lied to, get murdered at the front of the battlefield by King David. That would make anybody angry. Sure. It's okay to be angry. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Do not give a place to the devil. He gave place to the devil. That anger festered. He had so many plans. And as wise as he was, he was able to contrive these plans to get back at King David, to humiliate him in his own city, and eventually to end up murdering him as vengeance. That's what he wanted to do. His family was torn apart. That's all he dreamed about. And when he couldn't get it, he had no more dreams. He went home, put his house in order, and just committed suicide. That's hate. It's okay to be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester. That's the point that Ephesians is trying to get to us here. Anger is not hate. Going back to what exactly is it that the Lord hates, we have many examples. In Proverbs, you know, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. King David, a man after God's own heart, did many things that the Lord hates. Hates. Very clearly. So what, what's the point? What can we get out of this? We, we know from last week what we can do that is good to be the will of God. The point of this week was what is it that we do that makes the Holy Spirit sorry, distressed, heavy with sorrow? And that's a big one. It's okay to be angry, but don't let it go down and don't give place to the devil. One thing that they teach us a ton in, in school, and it's a common sense, is to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. Think of it from their point of view. Some people call it like a, a paradigmal shift. Um, one example that I heard, uh, which stuck with me ever since high school, was if uh, you're on a bus and you're moving along and you know it's going to be a long day, you had a bag of chips in your backpack, and you had some early in the day, so it's open. You know it's going to be long, you're going to be uh, snacking. Some lady comes on the bus, sits next to you, and you're just wandering your mind away, whatever. And you notice that she starts eating some of the chips, which is really, I don't, I don't know you. Uh, I guess they're just chips. That's okay. That's fine. She was hungry, whatever. But she keeps eating the chips. 
and just keeps eating. And you're just thinking, what in the world is this person doing? How can you just eat my chips? It's okay, not a big deal, just a bag of chips. But they get down to the actual last chip. And they both realize, like, oh, there's only one left. And she says, oh, you can have it. To which he's just like, are you kidding me? I can have my own last chip. you got to be joking me. But in his, his moment of anger, he takes it, puts a smile on, thank you. She gets up and leaves and gets off the bus. Eventually, he soon gets to his stop, gets off the bus, and hears some crinkling in his own backpack, only to realize his chips were there the entire time. The entire time, they were eating from her bag of chips. He thought it was his, but it was actually hers. That's a paradigm shift. When you thought things were one way, and then you realize, oh my goodness, they actually are a different way. And that's similar to putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And it's helpful in school. They always tell us, like, always put yourself in other person's shoes, and it, it makes sense. A lot of people have difficulty just even getting to the clinic. Some people have relationship issues, financial issues. It can always get really severe. This is where it starts hitting home. Just this past week, there was a patient I put myself into their shoes. He brought his wife over um, for a question of, of a brain issue. And it was painfully obvious that this was, it was Alzheimer's. They just didn't know yet. And the way that this works is that it's just a chronic, gradual decline where you start just forgetting memories. And, and I could see it in this husband's eyes. And he, and he put his head down, realizing all the memories, all the, the lifetime that they had together, they're, they're going to go. She's not going to remember. So putting myself in his shoes, it, it's not hard. I can see the sorrow that filled his heart. I can see the grief that he had. A, a more extreme example, which is the kind of stuff that haunts you, was in the ICU months ago. And there was a car accident, and there were two passengers, husband and wife. The wife died. In these car accidents, you get really severe brain injuries. Sometimes you don't see it because the head isn't really damaged that much, but the head, the brain itself actually got damaged. Every morning he woke up, he would ask about his wife because he forgot the day previous that we told him she died. I, I just, it's not hard to put yourself in those, I can't imagine it. He was crushed on a daily basis to learn that new information. The paradigm shift with David, we also have that in the Bible as an example. The prophet Nathan came up to him and gave him a little story. He said, King David, there is somebody in your land, kind of poor, not that much land. He doesn't own much, but he has some daughters, and he has this this beautiful little lamb. He treats it like family. I mean, whenever they go out, whenever they have dinner in the night, the lamb eats with them. They take care of it. It's to the point that this man treats the lamb as if it were his own daughter. He loves it very much. On a nearby piece of land, there's a rich man. Tons of flocks. More cattle and sheep than than he needs. Very wealthy individual. There was a traveler who came to visit him. Rather than getting one of his own lambs, he went to this neighbor's house and took his little lamb and killed it for food for this traveler. And David was angry. He was furious. And who wouldn't be? This is ridiculous. This is an injustice. 
And he said to him, bring me this man right now. I will kill him. I will show you the justice that I can do. And Nathan said, you are this man. You are the one that took Bathsheba. That's his paradigm shift. That's when David now became grieved. He realized what he did. I don't have to give stories of the Old Testament because we have our own shoes to live in, right? I don't need to tell you stories of sadness to somebody else because in my own family, right, there are things that the extended family did that I don't understand. It grieved me. It grieved my family. There are things in your life. John, you don't understand. Like, you don't know what my husband did. You don't know what my children did to me, what my parents did to me. You're right. I don't. I know we all have terrible things that we live with. I know we're grieved on a daily basis. But it's important to know that we don't give place to the devil to allow it to fester and grow because then it becomes hate. That is not the will of God. He does not want us to do that. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be hateful. I'm not telling you that there's an easy answer to this. Healing is a process. Draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. There's no immediate fix that I can give you other than we know that it is a process. And I never really understand where you're coming from. I have my own experiences. I have my own extended family experiences. Financial troubles, divorces happen in the family. I can't explain them to you. And there are times where I don't want to forgive. But I think the final example that we can give here of putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes is to realize the way that we feel hurt by whatever they did, that husband, that wife, that extended family did to us, the hurt that we feel is the same hurt that Jesus felt because of what we did. But even while we were hurting Jesus in this way, all of us, all over the world, he still chose, God still chose to have him crucified on the cross to take all that punishment for us, to take all that sorrow. And Jesus knew what was coming. I I talked about it a long time ago. He was begging the Lord, is there another way? Is there some other thing that I can do other than this? Right? He was bleeding the sweat because he knew the pain that was to come. That's what we were putting on him. I know my extended family did terrible things to me. I don't understand it. You don't understand how painful it is. You guys have your own things which are much more painful. But that's what the whole parable was of the, the debtors. Right? There was a king who was putting his financial orders in and realized that, oh my goodness, there's a man who has the equivalent of millions of dollars in debt to me. Bring me this man. And they did. And he said, you know, I'm going to put you and your family and your children in jail until you can pay. And the guy said, Look, uh, king, please give me time. I can repay this debt. I just need more time. Millions of dollars of debt. I don't, I don't know who can ever pay that. The king had pity on this guy, forgave him of his debt, and sent him on his way, which is amazing as it is. But this forgiven man went to one of his own debtors, who owed the equivalent of thousands, grabbed him by the throat and said, you pay right now. I want immediate payment. There were other servants who saw this situation go down. 
they were grieved. The same exact word that we see here, grieving the Holy Spirit. They were grieved at what they saw. Some interpretations even put it as angry at what they saw. Went back to the king, gave the report, and the king brought him back and said, What happened? Did I not forgive you of millions? That you would go to somebody with thousands? Like, to the, you went to the torture chambers now. Like, you will stay there until you pay it off. My, the things that my family has done do not feel like just thousands. It feels like me like it's millions what they did. And, and we all have something that I, I just can't believe that happened. But when compared against what we did to Jesus and what he took for us, that, that truly is the millions. Healing is a process. It can take time. That's what we are all here together for. We can see those in positions that we used to be in. So we can now help them by doing the good work. Closing off, I just want to read a chapter which uh, when you think of sorrow and grief and how we can do this to the Lord, uh, it, it gives a little bit more meaning to this chapter whenever I read it. But this is what I'll end it off with. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the, out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, I know you tell us to, to be thankful in all situations. And we try. There's so much that I don't understand. There's so much that I 
I feel like I can't forgive. But you gave a really good example. I pray that we can use these examples that we learn from the idea of seeing ourselves in somebody else's shoes, understanding that you forgave a debt in us that is far greater than the debt that I see in my own life. I pray that you help us move forward by drawing near to you so that you can draw near to us. I know this is a process that will take time. I know this is not something that gets solved in a moment. But your mercy is with us every day. You walk with us side by side throughout the entire process. I pray that you speak to those who maybe don't know you, who maybe don't have that relationship with you. But no one is immune to having grief in their own life, to having sorrows, to having these injustices done to them. But we can put that on you. We can give it up to you and you could help us out of it. And all it is is developing that relationship. And I pray if there are those out there who do not have it and you know who they are, who they're thinking by looking at their heart, that they can start that first step to follow with you, to draw near to you, to begin the process of forgiveness, to move forward, to not allow the times that we get anger to turn into a hate, to not allow the devil any little spot to grow. Thank you, Lord, for this family that we have here. Thank you for the support that we all have for each other, the love that we have for each other, and the knowledge that as we move forward, we have each other here and we have you along with us. Thank you so much, Lord, and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Tonight, 
to flee, to follow your lead. Shine your light on me, to see where you lead. Teach me from the darkness to flee.